Enlorn. And I'm Donna Grace. Welcome to the Life Rebalanced Podcast. Kristen A. O'Neill is a financial planner, certified yoga instructor, podcast host of the Tribe Podcast, forthcoming author of A Girl's Guide to Networking, self-proclaimed foodie, and dog mom to a golden doodle puppy named Charlie. In her web-based financial planning practice, she focuses her efforts on female primary income earners and women who are the money managers of their households. She's passionate about helping her clients achieve greatness. Her mission is to support clients in the area of financial planning so they can be great where it matters without apology. Kristen is also passionate about empowering other female advisors and has been called an up-and-coming voice in her industry. She speaks at industry meetings with her peers on the topics of industry diversity and fee-based financial planning and consulting. Originally from Southern California and a graduate of San Diego State University, Kristen feels strongly about supporting her alma mater through service and long-term financial gifts. You'll often find Kristen in San Diego supporting SDSU and related groups. Kristen, welcome to the Life Rebalanced podcast. Thank you. I was checking off all those things in my head to see if they were true, but they are. They are still true. I was actually (laughs) thinking the same thing (laughs) as I was going through them. Well, you talk a lot about being in San Diego, but Mm -hmm. I know that physically at the moment you are not in San Diego and I see your Tulsa t-shirt today. You have migrated. (laughs) You've you've been traveling. My California coffee mug. Oh, so still in your heart. It's the California bear hugging the state of California. So does that mean that your heart is still in Southern California, even though you are physically in Oklahoma at the moment? I grew up in Southern California, so that'll always have a big piece of me, I would say. And having a web-based financial planning practice means that you get to practice in Southern California or Tulsa or Dallas or wherever life may take you at any given time, right? Some places life has never taken me, which is actually really fun also. What, some places life has never taken you? Yeah, like I had clients in Seattle, Washington that I'd never met. Uh, I have a client in Ohio that I've never met. <laughs> well, you've met them. You just never met them physically. I've met them on Zoom. I imagine given the environment we're in right now, there's a lot of people who have met people only via Zoom at this point. Mm-hmm. And you consider new relationships that may have been you know, started over the last several months. Yeah. Well, first tell us what a financial planner does, because in our industry, there's a lot of misconception about what is a financial advisor and what do they do and how do they help people? So can you tell us about what you do and how that differs from general perception? Of course I can. So you might laugh, but when I saw your notes for this episode today, I was like, maybe I should look up (laughs) my client packet and see what I tell people I do. Because I find that a lot of times when I've worked with clients for a while, like they can't articulate well what I do. They're just like, Kristen will fix it. Just call Kristen. She'll do something. It'll be magical. So like a concierge. (laughs) Yeah. Kristen fixes money stuff. That's what Kristen does. She's my money person. So typically what happens is somebody comes to me and they've got some sort of problem they're trying to solve. So it could be something like we want to save to buy a house. We've just got married and we have a lot of debt to consolidate or pay off. We want to reorganize our checking accounts. We've been saving for a really long time, or I've been saving for a really really long time, but I'm not sure if I've saved enough, if that's my emergency fund, should I be investing? If so, how and where? And so what I do is I take some time understanding your goals and your lifestyle, what you're trying to accomplish, and I educate you on what your options are. And then I give you a written document with some recommendations that says, this is exactly what you should do. Most of my clients also leverage me to help them execute 
all the recommendations I make for them. And then we review on an annual basis, how is that going? Have there been any major goals or priority shifts, et cetera? So not a stockbroker? Not a stockbroker at all. Like on any given day, I probably can't tell you what's happening in the market unless it was really big and someone told me. So that's interesting because I think a lot of people have this idea that your financial advisor is going to give you a hot stock pick. I have people ask me that all the time. Like, oh, so what's good? What's hot right now? Like, I don't know. What, what's the temperature? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a party trick either, which I tell people all the time. It's like they walk up to me at like a church function or at a party and they're like, you're a financial planner, right? And like, I don't always want to cop to this because, you know, it depends, <laughs> depends on why you're asking. Then they're like, what do you think I should do with my 401k? And I'm like, first of all, I don't know your last name. I can't remember your first name. I have no idea what you should be doing with your 401k. Like, how old are you? What do you want? When are you retiring? How much is in there? What's your, like, it's just, I don't know. Yeah. To the doctor and being like, this hurts. What should I do? And they're like, I don't know. Make it yeah, up. Like, it's one element of a much broader picture. And yeah. unless you know the broader picture, you really can't give much of an answer. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't be terribly valuable at least. Right. So why did you get into, or how did you get into financial planning? Yeah, that's a great question. It was an accident. It was, it was not, many careers are, it was not on purpose. I definitely, I did not grow up thinking I wanted to be a financial planner or advisor. I remember in high school taking one of those tests where like, they tell you what your job's supposed to be. And it said life insurance agent. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. It sounds really boring. So I, so I was, I was in a series of careers out of college, all in like sales and sales management. And I had excelled in those. And I found that like, Every time I, as the boys say, knock the cover off the ball, they would look, they would change the metric. So I'd get one pay plan and they'd say, if you hit this percent over goal, you get the max amount of pay and I'd hit it and they'd move it. There were nine months where I had seven different pay plans at one company. So I left one company, went to another, the same thing ended up happening. And then there were office politics. This was in 2013. I just found myself really frustrated. And so I was terrified to be in any sort of commission kind of model. And I think we might talk about that a little bit later, but I went to a career fair and there was a guy that was like an older black guy. And he was like, you could do this job. And he had like a twinkle in his eye. And I was like, he charmed you. (laughs) Charming old guy. Like one of those old guys that wears like the long suit jackets, it's like down his knee and you're like, so I met, (laughs) so I met with him and his wife. And they talked to me about like the opportunity, which is a really common way that people get into the business is like, they meet with your spouse, et cetera. And like, I don't know. I think a lot of people in my community thought it was like kind of a scam or like I was going to get wrapped up in like a pyramid scheme. It was a big reputable company, but again, my like demographic doesn't have a lot or as much experience typically with the financial services industry. And so I took a leap. I started trying to work with him. I found that it was like hard to get training. I liked the idea of what they were doing at this company. I didn't like the way they were pursuing what they were doing. And I just, at some point I was like, this isn't going to work, but I really liked the idea of financial advising. So I Googled best life insurance companies to work for because this guy uh, worked for a big life insurance company. And I found one on the internet. I called them up and was like, are you hiring? Which I still laugh about to this day because when are they ever not hiring? I didn't know that at the time. And I think we talked about this like 25 first conversations in 30 or 40 days because that's what they told me to do. And turns out that's like hitting the cover off the ball when you're new. So I kind of like 
accidentally fell into it and then I fought my way in, I'd say. So just to be clear, so for anyone who's listening and and isn't familiar with the way life insurance sales works or how it works when you start out in the financial services industry as a salesperson, you don't come in and they say, okay, we're going to pay you $40,000 a year to work for us and sell things. That's really not how it works. It's all based on your production. So you come in and all of those first conversations you just mentioned are really relevant to your situation. You said that was the equivalent of knocking the cover off the ball. Yeah. So you're expected to go out into your natural market mm-hmm. and find all these people. You're expected to speak to you know your friends who've just graduated from college and say, hey, maybe you need some life insurance. Right. You're expected to go talk, and maybe they do, I don't know. But you're also expected to go talk to your parents' friends and like your grandparents' friends and in your family. And they're expecting you to go out as a new person in industry and sell to who you know. Before I had any training either. Like this was like, yeah. just go out and see what you can do and then come back. Like it's kind of like a test. It's a sales test. Yeah. They, they want to see one, do you have the frankly, the balls to go out and do this, right? Can Mm -hmm. you go talk to people? Can you go sell? Mm -hmm. And where is your confidence level? Mm -hmm. Because for me personally, I would have had trouble with that because if I don't feel like I have a really good mastery of something, the idea of going out and talking to people about it would make me want to vomit. So I don't have that skill the way you have that. Now you're at a point where you have mastered the content, mastered the processes, mastered the products. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you have the sales skills. So that's fantastic. I was holding my breath to see what you were going to say I've mastered. And I was (laughs) (laughs) like, I haven't mastered. Oh, wait. Yeah, no, that had to do my job. But you know, you understand the strategies, you know how to be a planner. You don't just suddenly join a life insurance company and know how to be a planner. But your path is not dissimilar to what a lot of people have had coming into industry. Mm -hmm. In fact, we know that in our industry, the majority of people are older white men Mm -hmm. and the majority of them did. So if you're like in your sixties, chances are you came into this industry through the life insurance channel, because I know when my father did that way. And when he talks about it, he says, yes, the financial plan started by saying, how do you determine your need for life insurance? And it evolved from there. So your path isn't terribly dissimilar, But as a young Black woman in industry, your experience is certainly dissimilar. Like we know women are underrepresented in industry and Black women are even further underrepresented in industry. So, you know, I know you recently wrote a blog post about your experience and about how you feel about the industry does it, frankly, a disservice to women like you. Do you mind talking a little bit about that now? Yeah. So I think the way people get into the industry, like you said, is is not... If you think your job title out of college is going to be financial planner, there's about two halves to the industry. I feel like at this point, like you can go to work for a company like yours where maybe you could get a little salary and like you could work. We, we would create that. Yes. Yeah. So but that's not necessarily the norm for our profession. Right. And I, I feel like that may become the norm and like the next generation, <laughs> perhaps. I hope it does because financial planning is a profession in and to itself. Mm-hmm. It evolved as a way to to sell product or to help put people into the correct product, but it has evolved into a profession in and of itself that is agnostic of any particular product. Mm-hmm. We haven't treated it like a profession. So right. when you have a financial services title, like when you're new in the business before you have all the credentials, you're called a financial services rep. And what happens, like in the case of this company and a lot of others, like the first company I worked with for a short time, 
2013, you come in and they're, they're a life insurance company, but they're like, you're a financial services rep. And you tell people on the phone, like, I'm a financial services rep and I'm, you know, I want to talk to you about your financial plans. And then like the only tool in your tool belt is life insurance. And so there's been a lot, there's most financial companies have thought, like, if we want to attract black clients, black female clients, especially because black women tend to manage the finances in the, in the households, not every household, but the vast majority and, or are single. So if we want to capture the pocketbooks of black women, then we just need to get some black female advisors or black advisors, and then that'll just solve the problem, which isn't necessarily the case because once black advisors get into the industry, we don't thrive at the same rate as white advisors do. I think part of the issue is like when I started this business, black and white, any all kind of people that I know were just like, um, I thought you were smarter than this. Like, I don't believe you fell for this guy getting you like trapped in this scheme kind of a vibe because people are all they're used to seeing is like somebody going to work for a life insurance company, thinking that they're going to have this great career and then burning out after a year or two and just having a ton of debt and having to go get a job. And so I feel like that's one, like that's kind of the image the industry has in the black community is like these multi-level marketing-ish kind of companies, not, none that I've ever worked with, but plenty that I know of come into the black community and are like churning life insurance policies. And you go to meet with somebody because you want to save to buy a house and you leave with a whole life policy and you're like, what happened? So even working for a very reputable company, mm-hmm. there's still a perception yeah. in in the black community that this is a scheme that's out to get you. It's not real or, or it's not... Reputable to who though? Like if you're growing up, good if, point. Yeah, your dad or your family has never worked with any of these big companies. And these are big companies that like again, big reputable companies, great ratings. But if you've never heard of them before, like it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't matter. It could be like if it was not an insurance though, what if it was with like a wirehouse? Like there are huge wirehouses offering financial services. Would that have been any different or would that have been the same sort of thing? It's a Wall Street thing. You're it could have been different. I think what would have been different is that none of my clients, very few, very, very few of my clients would have had the investable assets to be able to work with me if I was at a wirehouse. So like I'm thinking if if I had to fire all of my clients that don't have 250,000, even today. At this point, I would have a handful of clients left. Because if you're working with like business owners, a lot of business owners are reinvesting in their business as opposed to putting money into a brokerage account or, or even a retirement account. So I have clients that make, so my clients tend to make pretty good money. They may make three, $400,000 a year, but their kids are in college. They own a business. Like they're doing a lot of things and they're maybe they mm-hmm. have 401k at work and that's where all the money is. And I don't manage that. I tend to work with people who are, are really great income earners, but are, as we say, not rich yet. Um, high earner, not rich yet. That's the Henry. Yes. Yes. So those are not typically a good fit for like a big wirehouse. And even still, I think that maybe that name could have been intimidating in my work. I don't know. There's a lot like there's a lot of what ifs, but I think the point of the blog post was really our industry, the way it's set up doesn't support black advisors well. Like this idea of show up, get paid nothing for 90 days to six months while you get your business running and then work in your natural market. 
who, in my case, it takes me longer to work with clients because I have to educate them a lot more. There's a lot, I have to spend more time building trust because they've never worked with an advisor or have never even known an advisor. They don't know what the process is going to be. So I spent a significant amount of time just building the relationship and building a foundation. Also, Black clients or Black households have about a seventh of the net worth of white households. So even if I do the same work with the same client as my white counterpart, the size of my clients is smaller. So my compensation will be smaller. So Black women, Black men have to be supported differently than we've historically supported advisors in our industry. One of the things you mentioned is that a lot of your clients are often the first generation of their family to be working with an advisor. Mm -hmm. So the concept of, like you were talking about education, what an advisor does, how you can help building that trust, a lot of it just comes from the fact that it it hasn't been the norm within their family. Mm Mm-hmm. And you're saying this as someone, I know all of your clients are not African-American. I was going to make that point at some point. (laughs) (laughs) You have, you know, a very diverse client base. That being said, far more of your clients are than mine are. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, until we've had these conversations, it's not something that ever even really occurred to me Mm -hmm. about the challenge you have in, in serving your client base because their needs happen to be different. It's not something that had really ever even occurred to me before that I'd really considered. It's really shaped how I work with clients because I think we mentioned in the beginning, when you get started in your business, you have to sell a product to make money. Mm -hmm. And so when you go out as a new financial services rep, you're meeting with somebody who, who wants to save to buy a house, but, and you can help them. And like, not that all the time, not every firm teaches you how to help them, but you may know how to help them, but you don't get paid on that interaction unless they buy a product. And so there's a lot of pressure on you and them to execute on a product, which isn't fair to the client or I think for the advisor. And so later, as I was getting to know the industry, because there is no like handbook, how to be an advisor 101. Yeah. Yeah. Like as I was getting to the industry, I was like, this doesn't feel right that people want to meet with me about all this stuff and I can't help them with it. And an investment account wouldn't have really helped them either for a lot of my cases. So I found out that there was a way just to charge people a fee for advice. And this was, again, 2014 or 15. The industry has moved a lot considering how slow we move at things in general. But five, 10 years ago, it wasn't the case that these bigger life insurance companies were allowing their representatives to just charge a fee for a meeting or a fee for like a consulting fee the way I do now. I've had to navigate that on my own, but like they don't, I'm dealing with a situation right now where I'm like, they don't know how this works. Like they really don't understand what we're doing in the field. So it's been a really interesting journey because I find that I've had to create everything that I've needed to help my clients. And even- That's exhausting. (laughs) Yeah, the people in leadership have been like, hey, just go out and do this and I'll go try it and it doesn't work. And I'll realize it's because of the language I'm using or how I'm saying it or- Oh, that's interesting. Can, Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I got myself a few dates when I- So they teach you like when you start in the business. As a young woman in financial services, sometimes. Sometimes you're calling to date them, which I don't know why I would make call you at nine o'clock in the morning at your job to ask you on a date, but who am I? So the guys at work, the leadership team at work, oh yeah, guys, would teach you like what they used to say on the phone, like a sales script. And I used to call and like do that. I've been in sales a while by this point, right? So 
I call them, I use the script they're giving me. And then because I have sales experience and I can recognize this, the results I'm getting are really different. So I'm calling people and asking them for a meeting and they're like, yeah, let's meet at Kona Grill at seven. And Kona Grill is like not where you have business meetings, especially not at 7 p.m. So, and the guys would be like, well, where do you say, maybe you're saying it wrong. Or I would get people say, no, I'm really happy with my current opportunity because a female voice saying those words sounds like a recruiter, not like a financial advisor. And so I really had to spend a lot of time earlier in my career just breaking down the language that was given to me and trying to understand like what is the message they're trying to get to and then rebuilding that in a way that sounds authentic to me and or like the people I'm working with. And that constant translation, which is something that Black people generally do all the time, having to do that translation all the time can be really exhausting. And also going to your leadership team and all your colleagues and being like, this is happening to me. And they're like, must be you. Like, that's really... It's exhausting and demoralizing and it happens all the time. Go back and talk about that a little bit more. You said that as a Black person, you're constantly having to translate or change words. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? So I think we've talked about this before and I have on my Tulsa shirt that looks like, what is this? Friends. Friends, right? It looks like Friends. (laughs) I recognize that. Not to say that Black people don't watch Friends. Many of us do or did, but I think like we are responsible for knowing like, the American mainstream version of things like Friends, but also responsible for knowing like every episode of Girlfriends, every episode of Moesha, every episode of Martin, like. But you just said the mainstream American version of things. But what you really mean is the the white version of things. Yeah. White people TV, white people culture is what what you mean. And this is something that as a white person, it took me a a long time to grasp. Mm -hmm. Like I had to recognize that you already knew this because this is part of your life. Yeah. I think it's important for white people to hear this. I think as a white woman, you probably understand this a little bit. Like you've probably seen a man do or say something and you're like, I could never do or say that. Yes. Or they'd respond to me differently if I did or say that. Or like, or that feeling of just like being out of place, just We've talked about like financial planning conferences, but I always joke, like my firm has like a Monday kickoff meeting and the first five or 10 minutes of it, like they're talking about sports. <laughs> I'm like, what's a sport? What season are we in? And so just kind of being out of place in, in the sense that all of my colleagues are married men, usually white, much older than me. And the mentorship available to me is like grandparent age white men who they're typically, they're like, hey, let me take John and his wife out to dinner and talk to them about the business. Or, you know, they feel more comfortable mentoring yes. people who look like younger versions of them. And so I don't really get the same opportunities to like go to lunch or go play golf or do whatever we're doing because people typically feel uncomfortable because they don't know how to approach me just because I'm different than them. And I, I always tell people, like, if you feel uncomfortable, Mm-hmm. imagine how uncomfortable I feel because I'm the only one that looks like me most of the time. And so however uncomfortable you're feeling, if you're a financial advisor and you're white and you're in an office, I've lately I've been like, we feel 10 times more uncomfortable than you do. So get over it and take them to lunch. Like <laughs> get over it and go to lunch. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Take them to lunch. Just do it. Yeah. You get white splained and mansplained. You get white mansplained. Yeah. All the time. I feel like you're talking about a specific instance. I am, but I'm sure it's more than that. Yeah, no, well, it doesn't happen as much anymore because I have so many 
friends and colleagues in this business that typically, not all the time, but typically my reputation precedes me a little. And so people tend to just, for me, again, I've been in this business seven years, it'll be eight years soon. And so that's different. But like I wrote this blog post and I titled it Why Black Women Quit the Financial Services Industry. And like, I felt like I did a really good job of it. Other people said I did a really great job, mostly women. And I wrote it because this year I've been being asked a lot of questions about 2020, God bless it, about being a black woman, period, my industry, just what it's like on the streets. Why am I in Tulsa? That's a whole other episode. And I felt that like there was no article I could find on the internet where I was like, you see what this person said? Like, that's exactly what's happening. And so I wrote something and women of all backgrounds came out and they were like, this is exactly right. This is spot on. And this one white guy in a financial planning group said something like, I love your enthusiasm, but I think this is like headed the wrong direction or something, something like, uh, we should name it something else. And here's the real reason why there aren't any black women in the industry. And I'm like feeling my blood boil right now. just like thinking about it. Like I didn't read like somebody else in the group had started going back and forth with him for like toe to toe with him. And I just was kind of watching it. And at the end, I just said, we are not changing anything. And basically like I said what I said, and then I just like closed my laptop and went to bed. Like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to fight with you about what my experience was and, and why I find it challenging because I talk to women in this industry all the time and we all say the exact same thing. So we're not going to argue about what my experience is or what the experience of my friends have been. Well, I mean, frankly, you're seeing not so much about specifically being a woman or a financial advisor, but just how many white people are explaining why the Black experience is what it is right now. Like, how, how could I possibly know what it feels like to be a black person in America right now. That, that is not my business to describe. I think the thing that I really want to make clear to everyone is like right now seems different, but it's not really that different when stuff happens. And like, yes, we are all exhausted and frustrated and angry and sad. And like all of those emotions on a rotating basis right now, I don't think surprise is one of the emotions that we're feeling often this moment for us is like when you're a woman and you're in a big meeting and you say something profound, like, guys, do you think next time we do this, it could be an email and then nobody says anything. And then Bob goes, guys, next time we do this, this should be an email. And they're like, Bob, that's a really great idea. And you're just like, mm -hmm. like, you're just like pulling your hair, like that feeling. I think it's how we feel this year. Like we've been telling you guys this for 50 years, 100 years, 200. And finally, somebody's listening, which feels great, but I don't need you to just listen. I need you to do something about it. And so until we're at a point where the people in the position to make the change, the people with the most power can listen and not try to fix it in a way that they want to fix it. Like you, if you're in a position of power, you have to fix something like this in a way that is sacrificial. And it starts with simply listening and listening is not like not listening to justify your point, like listening and truly hearing just to hear what someone else truly hearing and acknowledging mm -hmm. and then starting to move forward. Yeah. You've been some really specific advice on this, which is like, if you're trying to figure out what to do, because I know there's some action steps in my article that you can look at too. go to your black friend, black friends. Maybe there's more than one. I love that you just said your black friend, the one you have. 
Oh, Kristen, I love you. I've had a lot of people be like, I have a black friend. I'm like, um, am I it? Or like, if you have to identify them as your black friend, like, so go to your black friends or colleagues (laughs) or colleagues and just ask them or send them my article and say, hey, what do you think about this? Because I think what I wrote applies to different industries. I just happen to write it from Mm -hmm. industry perspective. So what do you think about this? And then just say no words. And if you feel compelled to say something, don't say anything, just write it down. And then when they're done, ask them, thank them for sharing how they feel and what's going on. And then ask them, what do they think we should do about it? And don't argue with them. Don't say what you think we should do about it. Because it's like, if somebody's leg's broken, you're not going to be like, here's what I think we should do. They're going to be like, here's what I need you to do to solve my problem. Just let them talk. And then go back to your white peers or other peers and talk about what you think needs to be done. And that's what we've been doing forever. You guys tell us what to do all the time. And we are like, okay, cool. And then we just go back and talk about what we're actually going to do later. Like that's, that's and I want to be clear, like you're going to find a black person that's going to be like what Kristen wrote is hogwash. Like that's not happening. And yeah, someone's going to have a different experience than me. That's also black. That's true. But for the most part, most of the people I talk to on a regular basis and many that I don't would agree that this is a pretty consistent theme or narrative that they're seeing right now. That seems reasonable. And I love that you said, ask. And then listen and don't try to compete with it because how often do we ask? And I can mean anybody, like in any context, any conversation, mm-hmm. ask a question and then just offer your own solution. If you, if you already have the solution, this wouldn't be an issue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like like if, if we already have the solution, it wouldn't be an issue. So clearly something different needs to be done. Yeah. Clearly. Nobody in financial services leadership wants to hear this, but if you want to have more Black advisors in your office, the obvious thing to do would be to pay them like a salary. Or if you want Black advisors like me or more salaries than me to have the bandwidth to be able to mentor every other Black advisor you put in the office. You found yourself in that position. Yeah. A lot. You need to pay them to do that because it's a lot of work. It's on top of the job. Yeah. It's on top of your regular job and you know how hard your regular job is already. And so you have to compensate people for the work they're doing. You also have to realize that like, if there's two advisors, the same tenure, one's black and one's white. If you look at their production and they're both within like a 25 percentile range of each other, they may both be equally qualified for a leadership role. And so when you're looking at mid-level leadership for those first promotions, because everybody's benches, most people's benches are stark white and male. The only way that changes is if you like look at somebody that wasn't on the golf course with you last Friday or wasn't at the dinner party you were at, like look at the entire field and see who else is available that might like whose door is always open and people are always walking in and out of it. I can name some advisors who were not in leadership, whose offices I were always in my first couple of years in the business. Yeah. They were in leadership unofficially and not getting compensated for it. And representation matters. And when you talk about mm-hmm. how exhausting it can be for you to be the only one in a room or the only one in a group and have an experience where people don't necessarily feel that they can relate to you and therefore don't reach out to you and you don't get the same community feeling that somebody else 
might have. This this yeah. is where what you just described, I think, matters so much. If you can see yourself in a place, you're more likely to go there. More advisors will be attracted. And then the results of that is more people are helped. More people will have better financial outcomes because mm-hmm. there will be more advisors to help them. I am very much on board with you for this. Very, very much. Yeah. It's going to take a lot more time. I think people think that they can just like snap your fingers, <laughs> put a bandaid on it, snap your fingers and it's done. And this is a systematic issue that deserves a systematic response that has taken generations to get us here. And it will take at least a generation to get us out. Yeah. And, so, and that depends on how fast everyone's working. And if we're talking about our people, the financial services world, it's not going to be fast, probably. <laughs> so, Like you said, the solution is going to be one that is somewhat sacrificial. Mm-hmm. The people who are in leadership roles and at the top, which are mostly, and again, this is not all, we're not speaking in absolutes, but the fact is there is a majority and it is white men. Mm-hmm. And so they have to be willing to see someone other than themselves in a position. It's not what is the solution that will serve me the best. It is what is the solution that will actually solve this issue, that will actually attract mm-hmm. more female advisors, more black advisors, more black female advisors. Mm-hmm. This is part of it. And it's it's having to see a solution that isn't automatically self-interested. Yeah. We also have to all agree that there, one, is a problem and two, what the problem is. And that's what I learned from the guy in the, the Facebook group that was like, mm-hmm this is the real problem. Everybody that I like, tons of people I don't know jumped on him and was like, no, that's not the problem. problem. But I think there is the majority of men in our industry are like, there's not an issue. Go do what I did. Go buy a book, become the vice mayor of your town and just, you know, knock down doors until you get it done. And it's not because we're lazy or can't do it. Like it's none of, it's never any of that. The reality is we're trying to run the same race, but we're starting like two miles behind the starting line. And if you're not willing to recognize that particular fact, then we've got a long way to go. And I suspect that that may be the case, but I'm here for anybody that's like come to the realization that some stuff needs to be done and needs help or direction or encouragement and making it happen. I can't promise my energy will always be sunny because like I said, rotating feelings of <laughs> exhaustion, annoyed, tired, mm-hmm. but I, I feel like I'm doing what I can, which is sharing my experience and letting people know that this is what's happening for me. Sharing stories is important. And my hope is people just listen to other people's stories, <laughs> right? That's, that's the hope. So I follow you on Instagram mm-hmm. and I love all of your cooking. You. I love all of your Charlie pictures. Can you talk a little bit about who you are when you're, well, you're always a financial planner, let's be clear, but talk about what your other interests are, because I think that you do have a focus on wellness. Lauren and I believe that financial wellness is an integral part of your total wellness. And I think you do too. Can you talk about those other pieces of you, your yoga instructor? Like, yeah. tell me more about this. Mm. You're very interesting. Well, I'm just, I'm so fascinating. <laughs> this year, more so than than any I feel like I try not to be a financial advisor after like three or four o'clock on Friday until like nine or 10 on Monday morning. Like that's my goal, but I take that with me everywhere. Part of your balance. (laughs) You're trying to keep balance there, but. Yeah. I feel like I do a pretty good job and my clients do a really good job of allowing me to do it, which I really appreciate. And so when I'm not financial planning, 
you will often find me like doing some sort of meal plan kind of thing. Like right now I'm doing keto and like, I love to cook. And so find a way to be skinnier than I am, because I think that would be cool. Then I'm, <laughs> I'm going to fall like whole 30 or keto or something like that. I love to poach an egg. I love coffee. I did a yoga teacher training class a few years ago and got my certificate, not so much because I wanted to teach yoga, but because I wanted to learn more about it with a lot of depth. And I think that what it gave me was the knowledge that like assisting people, I don't know if any of you guys have ever been in a yoga class with a good assistant, but assisting people and helping people like be their best selves as cliche as that feels or sounds that is really what I love doing, like being the silent person who is helping you make these tiny adjustments that make such a big difference in your practice or your life. Like that's where I find a lot of my passion. And so that's, I think where financial planning fits into my life. As I say this all the time, Mm. the goal is to help you get this off your plate so that you can be great where it matters without apology. And where it matters is like not stressing out about your budget or is it the right investment? So yeah, I am entertaining the golden doodle puppy, going on long walks because it's a pandemic and that's what we do and going to brunch or hosting brunch. Like that's my life outside of, of my work, I think is pretty simple. And for now I like it that way. And I'm inspired by all of your cooking. I'll tell you that it looks much better than the time I did keto. And I was basically eating the same thing. I was like, Oh, let me just eat this steak and put some butter on it yeah. and <laughs> eat this celery with cream cheese in it. I have a so, short attention span and I literally go to bed dreaming about what I'm going to cook in the morning. It's weird, but like, again, my life is small. I have a dog, and I, have <laughs> and I have food, and then I have work. Our keto experience is very different. Yes. Yeah. I think it's also like keto three years ago was different. Like I did Whole30 probably five or six years ago before, mm-hmm. however long it was before people were really doing it. And like, you had to make your own mayonnaise and make your own everything and you couldn't eat out anywhere. And now you can like, just go to the store and primal kitchens there for you, you know, the keto was pre primal kitchen. So yeah, it was, it was really different, but I think like helping people be great is the thing I love doing. And so one of the other things I I'm going to branch out into doing more formally, because I do this informally all the time is also helping support other advisors. So I think that's, I get the, Hey, I want to run something by you call every couple of weeks and the something they want to run by me is usually pretty major, but they know my mind for the business, my heart for practice management and helping other financial advisors serve their clients in a way that makes sense for them. Like that gets me excited about life. Cool. And we're talking about work again, but that's me. That's okay. I get excited about my work. I mean, I'm all about the integration piece of things. Mm-hmm. I very much so am which is good because it made transitioning through this pandemic a lot easier. Yeah, (laughs) it wasn't when everything blended. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask you three questions that Lauren and I like to ask all of our guests. So we very much believe the idea of having it all, but not all at the same time. You can't give the same amount of attention to all areas of your life at the same time. So if you were going to identify one area that is the primary focus of your attention right now, what would you say that is? And it can be big or small. There's no one right answer. (laughs) I'd say the primary focus right now is transitioning my business. I'm making a big business transition the next 90 days. Mm -hmm. Rebranding and doing some other really big stuff. So stay tuned for that. That's the thing I'm spending the most time thinking about at the moment. I'd say secondarily, staying in ketosis. It's a (laughs) full-time thing that I'm thinking about. So if you had to let one of those slide though, which would it? I think I let things 
if like your energy was just being expended and one thing you're going to be like, you know what, today I'm going to let that go. Would it be the keto? <laughs> if it was today, the keto ball would stay in the air. Oh, because, okay. Mm-hmm. Cause like the other stuff, like I can't, it's not something I have to work on actively every day. So if we're going like just for today. All right. That's interesting. And I don't know that I've ever framed the question that way. I'm going to have to rethink about this. Also, my birthday's coming up this week and there's like a couple dress options. So the keto uh-huh. ball has to be the focus. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, I'm glad that you can say we're at the point where there's a couple of dress options, meaning that we are at the point in this pandemic enough that you're going to get dressed to go out. I'm going to leave the house. Will I be standing close to people? I don't know. <laughs> but yes. I'll be leaving the house for my day. <laughs> cool. All right. So right now your health doing keto and your business transition, which is such a big deal. Those are the areas that are getting the most attention. Is there any other area of your life where you're kind of just giving yourself grace? You're like, you know what? I can't be a hundred percent all the time on all things. Is there any area that you've had to like, just give yourself a little bit of grace on and say, I'll get to this after. I struggle with giving myself grace, which I think is a, a thing that I hear commonly from women but I realize that I can only do a couple of things well at a time. And I think the things that I have to do, the two things I mentioned right now are the things that I'm focused on. The thing that I will focus on once I feel like keto has been rolling for a while and the business transition is running on its own will be dating. Oh, yeah. Pandemic dating I mean, should be on the back burner anyways. Let's be clear. <laughs> but like the pandemic has not stopped the aging process. And so... <laughs> I need to give that some level of focus or attention because when I don't focus, we're putting attention on it. I'm very compartmentalized as a human and I'm very heads down and people will be like, that guy talked to him. Like, no, he didn't. Like I'm, and I have a meeting in 20 minutes. So whatever. Your head is not there. Yeah. I need to like take my head out of my business and. So you'll get through your business transition and then flip that switch. I think if I That's can how it's gonna halfway work. through the business transition and yeah. to the fall. Big stuff. The, the real fall, not September, like in like a couple months. I think I'm good. I look forward to more about that. <laughs> and so are there any habits or any systems that you would consider to be like a number one or like an integral part of your life that's really helping you as you are focusing on trying to transition your business as you're focusing on, well, I mean, honestly, the eating habits, keto requires some very specific habits, but is there anything that you consider to be like so important to your life? You don't let it slide. This may seem strange. And and if you're a business owner in the service-based industry, I'd encourage you to do this. But a couple of years ago, I was like, one of my advisor friends was like, what's something you really want to do when you're more established? And I was like, take Fridays off. And he was like, well, what's stopping you from doing that now? I applied Parkinson's law to my calendar. And I talked to the clients about that and Parkinson's law, in case you have never heard of that, is that a task expands to fill the time allotted for it. Mm, So I find if I like block out Friday, no one will schedule on Friday and I'll still have the same number of meetings. They just won't like spread out so wide. So this past year I took every other week almost often during the summer and nearly every Friday. And I also don't see clients on Mondays. So I've over the course of the year, I've gotten down to only seeing clients Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and no one has thrown a fit. Everyone's been really understanding. And I would just say like setting your parameters for your schedule because service-based is women and service-based entrepreneurs. All I ever hear is like, you know, my clients need to see me on Saturday and they need this and they need that. Girl, what about what you need? Because I can't, it takes a certain type of energy 
to work with clients and I love them and I get excited, but by Friday at 10 o'clock, I ain't got it. I can't talk anymore. You're done. Yeah. I like what you said about it takes a certain type of energy. I very much agree with Mm -hmm. you on that. And that's why I practice a similar time blocking strategy. Experiment with it. Like it's a game changer for me this summer to take weeks off at a time. And I will take weeks off. I think we all do it in December as financial advisors, but December, January, but it gives you so much freedom instead of having those weeks where like you have a light client load, just being like, Hey, I'm going to reschedule you to next week and not doing nothing, but like having a clear schedule where you can have thoughts about like, maybe my business needs a transition or maybe I need a new market. Like Mm -hmm. just to be able to clear the playing field for you to think like just thinking in silence. It's made a huge difference to me this year. I agree. I am with you on that. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for being with us today. I've been waiting to have this conversation for a while, so I I really appreciate it. And if people want to follow you, how can they connect with you? You can follow me on Instagram at the new KO and on facebook.com slash her planning. Her planning. I like that. Any of those places will give you a way to send me a direct message and we can connect and chat. And if someone wants to follow your blog, what's the best way to do that? One of the things we're cleaning up is all these branding things. The new KO is my personal Instagram, and that's going to be pictures of Charlie, walks in the park, food, maybe some stuff about money. The blog lives at kristenashleyo.com. It's Kristen with two eyes, ashleyo.com. That's where the blog is. So if you want to read it, send it to a friend, send it to a financial advisor, send it to your black friend. You know what to do. Send it to your black friend. You crack me up. <laughs> and we'll have all of that in the show notes too. So if you're looking for that, I know that was a lot of handles. We'll get you there. Yeah. All right. Again, thank you so much for being with us and uh, keep taking care of yourself. Thank you too. Be well.